From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello, my name is Alyssa Carroll, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to some of my patrons, as always. Janice, Pixie, Rachel, Whitney, Maya, Alethea, Elena, Katoras, Catherine, Sam, Linda, Katarina, Teresa, Sophie, Nanette, my two Emmas, Emily, Galen, Bree, David, John, and Judy. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that I can bring you more of what you crave. Also, like, share, and subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. Today's podcast will be on Charlie Brandt, born Carl Eric Brandt, on February 23rd, 1957. So, as we always do, let's get a read on the global atmosphere at that time. The Asian flu, thought to have been caused by a mutation in wild ducks combining with an already existing human flu strain, originated in China. The final death toll in the United States was around 70,000, and worldwide, the death toll is thought to be in excess of one million. We've been discussing the fact that this Asian flu has covered a lot of territory in a short time. There were two treaties signed in March 1957. The Treaty Establishing the European Economic Community, or EEC, and the Treaty Establishing the European Atomic Energy Community, or EAEC. The first European Parliamentary Assembly held its first session the following year. These were known as the Treaty of Rome and was signed by Belgium, France, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and West Germany. Under the name Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union, it remains one of the two most important treaties in what is now the European Union, or the EU. In 1957, the Treaty of Rome would become the basis for Europe's reconstruction. The chairman of China's Communist Party, Mao Zedong, delivered a speech in which he stated, quote, let a thousand flowers bloom, a hundred schools of thought contend, end quote. To many observers, these statements seem to indicate a relaxing of totalitarian rule. Criticism directed against the government soon developed. Federal troops integrated schools in Little Rock after local authorities refused to implement court-ordered desegregation. President Eisenhower ordered federal troops to do the job. He stated, quote, The federal constitution will be upheld by me by every means at my command. End quote. And, you know, considering the current rather tense political climate, let's touch on more positive things. 
1957, the popular movies were The Ten Commandments, Around the World in 80 Days, Seven Wonders of the World, The Tea House of the August Moon, Island in the Sun, and Love Me Tender. Popular songs, Too Much, All Shook Up, and Teddy Bear by Elvis Presley. Love Letters in the Sand by Pat Boone, and That'll Be the Day by the Crickets. And finally, the most popular television shows were Gunsmoke, The Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp, General Electric Theater, and You Bet Your Life. So this was the general atmosphere Charlie was born into. His parents were Herbert Brandt and Ilsa Louise Zerpel Brandt. I dug around quite a bit, but I really couldn't find anything about their early lives. We know that both Herbert and Ilsa were born in Germany in 1931 and 1932 and immigrated to the United States, but I couldn't find whether or not this was while they were still minors with their parents or if they met in Germany and immigrated. Charlie's sister later went on to say that Herbert had belonged to the Hitler Youth, or more accurately, was forced into it at the tender age of 10. What I do know is that they originally settled somewhere in Texas before moving to Connecticut, then over to Fort Wayne, Indiana. Herbert worked as a laborer for a division of International Harvester. He worked hard and eventually was promoted as a draftsman and project engineer. The couple went on to have four children. The oldest was Angela, then two years later Carl, who I will continue to call Charlie to save on confusion, and two more daughters a few years later, Melanie and Jessica. Now, as we know, the family moved around some, and that meant the children attended a few different schools. By all accounts, the family was close. Charlie was described as being rather close to his mother, actually. It was also said he was a bit shy and introverted, but seemed a content, well-adjusted, mannerly child who also enjoyed father-son time they shared when they went hunting together. Everyone that knew the family, and especially young Charlie, said that they seemed like a very typical and happy family. Charlie was doing well in school, but it was said that he was a bit chubby, so he did get picked on a bit for that. It was in late December 1970, when Charlie was 13 years old, that the family took a trip down to Florida for a vacation and for Herbert and Charlie to do some hunting. They also took their old family dog, a beagle, with them. So sometime during the trip, the elderly dog was really having serious issues and it was decided the dog needed to be put down. Back in those days, people handled that on their own. There was very rarely ever a tearful car ride to the veterinarian to do it for you. It was your responsibility to end their suffering. Herbert pointed his gun at the dog and shot it for that very purpose. Now, there were some whispers that Charlie had shot the dog, but the sources more commonly said it was Herbert. And still other sources stated that the dog was in some bushes and that Herbert fired a shot to get the dog to come out of the bushes and accidentally hit the dog and that he hadn't meant to shoot it. The takeaway from this is that the family dog was shot and killed while they were gone on their trip to Florida. They returned home after the trip and all seemed normal. One week later, it was a cold Sunday night. 
The family had just recently purchased their first color television and were sitting together watching a program when they all got up and began to get ready for bed. Here's an interview with Angela, who was at the time 15 years old, telling the story of what happened. I haven't told this story. I can't remember when. This is Investigator Rob Hemmert with the Salem County Sheriff's Office. The person being interviewed is Angela, and the last name is Brent. That's all right. Okay, I'm all right. All right. It was January 3rd, 1971. Charlie was 13? Yes. And Angela, you were how old? 15. 15. Tell me again what took place and what was going on. 9, 10 p.m. Okay. We um, had just gotten a color TV. Right. So we were all sitting around watching the FBI, you know, Evans and Blitz Jr. and all that. Okay. Um, FBI was over. We went upstairs. I went and got in bed and to read my book like I always did before I went to sleep. Okay. My mom ran a bath and read Time magazine. My dad was shaving. Okay. So you're, you're in your bed reading, and what happens next? I heard loud noises, which I perceived to be firecrackers. Okay. For the simple reason, not that that makes any sense. That's right. But, I mean, you know, I sure. just, what other loud noise is there? Popping. Yeah, just a really loud, loud noise. And I just, like I said, I just thought it was firecrackers. So I started pulling the covers back to see why on earth, you know, there was all this noise going on. But then I heard my father yell, um, Charlie, don't, or Charlie, stop. And my mom was just screaming, and the last thing she ever, the last thing I ever heard my mom say was Angela call the police. So what happened after that? So, um, I, as I said, I was removing the covers from my bed and getting out of the bed, and all this took place in split seconds. Okay. I mean, it, we couldn't, this has got to be less than a minute, I would think, okay? Mm-hmm. And I get up, and as I'm getting up, he comes into my room. Charlie. Charlie. Mm-hmm. Uh, brandishing the gun, a gun. I didn't even realize what it really was. I mean, until he aimed it at me and he pulled the trigger. Okay, so you could hear it click. I, I was going to say, and it, and it, I could hear it click. Okay. And uh, uh, I guess when he realized the gun didn't have any more bullets, that must be what he threw it on the floor. And as I said, I was lucid enough to kick it under the bed. I didn't know if it had any bullets in it or not. I don't even know what was going on. Right. And then an, a physical altercation ensued. I imagine, I think he struck me. I do. I think he, because I had blood and just bruises, and I fought back. This is the only physical altercation I've ever been in in my entire life, okay? okay? And I guess I won because I'm here to tell about it. I don't right. know. Right. And um, I just still, my brain, I remember I was only 15. My brain was trying to assimilate what was going on, and I was trying to get away from him at the same time. He was very strong. Next thing I know that I can remember is I was laying flat on my back. My bed was right here. On the bed? No, on On the floor. Probably knocked me to the floor. I don't know. Okay. And he was sitting on me and he was strangling me. Okay. Okay. I was drifting in and out. I don't think that I got him off of me physically. All right. I remember the way I remember it is I saw the weird look on his face, the madness, the, the glazed over look, okay. I saw it disappear. He just looked more like himself and he said, what am I doing? Or what have I done? And I remember perfectly saying, I don't know, but I think you shot dad. Cause I heard my dad yelling, 
Charlie, don't do that, or Charlie, stop. And he said, oh, I did, or whatever. I said, I don't know, but get off of me so we can figure it out, okay? And he did, he got off of me. My next step, I was trying to get out of the house. He goes, so you're not going to leave me, are you? Of course I said no. who was over eight months pregnant at the time, had gone upstairs and was taking a soothing bath. Herbert was at the sink shaving his face. Three-year-old Jessica and two-year-old Melanie were already fast asleep in their beds. Fifteen-year-old Angela had gotten into bed with her current book, as she always did, to read until she fell asleep. 13-year-old Charlie, who had retrieved a gun that his father owned out of his father's drawer, walked into the bathroom where both of his parents were, pointed, and began shooting. He shot his pregnant mother several times, killing her and the fetus she was carrying. He shot his father in the back and nearly killed him, but he survived. The two small daughters, for whatever reason, were left alone to sleep unharmed. He attempted to shoot Angela, but the gun was out of bullets, so he attacked her and began strangling her. And then he appeared to come out of some sort of trance and asked, quote, What am I doing? End quote. Angela, knowing now that she had Charlie's attention, told him to go get the baby sister so they could run and live in peace. That's what she told him. As he agreed and turned to rouse them, Angela ran screaming as fast as she could out of the house. The first house, she just attempted to turn the knob, but it was locked. So she fled to another house. By the time the 16-year-old neighbor, Sandy, registered the screaming, she heard knocking, opened the door only to find Charlie standing there. Sandy later stated that Charlie told her, quote, I just shot my mom and dad, end quote. The police were called to the scene and ambulance rushed Herbert to the hospital where he nearly lost his life. Once he was stable, they asked him if he knew of any reason why Charlie would do this. Herbert told them, quote, I don't know why my son did this. I have no idea as to why my son did this. He's a good kid. He was just having a bad day, end quote. But Herbert admitted that, in fact, his son had shot him and murdered his pregnant wife. It was at this time that Charlie was taken into custody. The court ordered Charlie to be psychologically assessed, not only to the psychiatrist's surprise, but really everyone involved. They could find no cause for his actions, no mental illness or seeming psychosis. They were quite puzzled. 
And keep in mind, this was 1971, and we know more about childhood psychology. There was the fact that his father had killed the family dog, but it didn't quite seem like that one action would lead him to attempt to kill his parents and sister. Charlie had told the psychiatrist that his mother had nagged him too much. Was it some issue with him and his mother's relationship? That really didn't seem to jive either. Charlie simply explained to them, quote, Everything sort of snapped in my mind. I felt like I never felt before. End quote. And back in those days in Indiana, they couldn't charge the boy with such a serious crime. During the trial, Charlie told the judge, quote, I didn't really want to. It was like I was sort of programmed. I hesitated, but the next thing I knew, I had shot them. End quote. He was allowed to attend his mother and the infant's funeral in shackles, of course, and it was said that he showed no remorse or really any emotion at all. A psychiatrist, Dr. Green, went to visit Charlie and had him describe the day of the murder. Dr. Green's assessment was that the boy just didn't fit any diagnostic category for mental illness. Charlie had acted impulsively, the psychiatrist said, being a, quote, victim of ill-defined impulses, end quote. It was his opinion that Charlie was suffering from an uncontrollable impulse, but was competent. The same was said of Edmund Kemper, just so you know. The judge decided he should go to a state mental hospital to be evaluated and observed. And after a year, the professionals could detect no issue with the boy at all. According to the book, quote, Invisible Killer, The Monster Behind the Mask, quote, Later he would tell his older sister Angela, I knew when they wanted me to cry, so I did, end quote. Charlie was learning how to mimic human behavior, how to be quiet, how to fit in, how to be a model patient, and how to appear a good friend. A year after the shooting and after a lot of work and urging from Herbert, Charlie was released back to his family. Nearly immediately, Herbert took the kids and moved to Florida. The two youngest girls had been told that their mother had died in a car crash. So they grew up never even knowing what Charlie had done to their family. Angela later stated that she lived in constant fear of her younger brother from then on that that fear never left her. And this, my friends, was the family secret that was never to be talked about, brought up, or hinted to. Whether Herbert explicitly told Angela to never speak of it again or not, it was buried deep. In Florida, life went on as if nothing had happened. And it was said that Herbert never confronted Charlie about what he had done as well, never asked him why he had shot him and his own mother killing her. After living in Florida for a couple of years, Herbert met and subsequently married a woman and apparently moved back up to Indiana for a while with the two younger girls. Charlie was 16 at this time. Angela was now 18. Now, apparently Herbert's parents moved from Germany to Florida to help finish raising Charlie. He was at this point, attending public school in Daytona Beach and did make a few friends. But in a high school full of athletic kids who played sports and surfed, Charlie spent his extra time playing chess and collecting stamps. 
He was still very much introverted and had no issue with his own company. Charlie did have a couple of girlfriends during high school and sparked a bit of a friendship with his sister's then-boyfriend, who also thought of the lad as a quiet but completely normal and passive young man. One thing did seem a little off, though. Charlie loved to go fishing, and when he went to cut and fillet the fish, he did so while they were still alive. He then went on to graduate from Seabreeze High School and went on to Daytona Community College and earned an associate's degree in electronics. During this time, Angela ended things with her boyfriend, the one that had stated Charlie liked to clean fish while they were still alive. Angela, who never spoke about her brother's actions, did confide what had happened to her boyfriend. He and Charlie had remained friends for a bit after, and when the now ex-boyfriend vented to Charlie about his heartbreak, Charlie replied, quote, The best revenge is when you cut someone's heart out and eat it. End quote. He later said that he wasn't particularly put off by the statement because young men often say intense things to sort of show how tough they are. But he said, quote, After that came out of his mouth, I slept with one eye open. That was the first time around him that I felt trepidation and fear. And I couldn't talk to my friends about it because nobody knew what I knew and they would have laughed at me. And I was brainwashed by the family's statements that he deserved another chance. End quote. Another story from a friend that Charlie had in his very young adult years was that Charlie had taken his boat out somewhere to one of the islands in the Keys and found a big stash of cocaine. He began taking it as well as dabbling in LSD and he found himself a dealer and sold the rest of the stash in Miami. Coming back from Miami, he apparently was seen drinking vodka straight from the bottle and was, quote, blown out on coke. Yet another friend said that Charlie became a little obsessed about sharks if they caught them while fishing. He would liven up, look nearly giddy, and would want to immediately gut the sharks because, he said, there might be human body parts within. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. A roommate of Charlie's, when asked if he thought Charlie could have been murdering during this time, the roommate said that he believed he could have. Again, in the book Invisible Killer, the roommate stated, quote, Charlie used to come home from working at Bahama Joe's, the seafood joint, in the kitchen. And when he came home at night, he smelled absolutely awful. He was wearing his work outfit, but also those big, awkward rubber boots you wear to either fly fish or trudge through deep water. And all over his boots and his clothes would be blood. End quote. When the roommate would ask Charlie about it, he would say that he was covered in blood because, quote, the meat was really fresh. End quote. Nonetheless, Charlie became a radar specialist for Ford Aerospace. 
Around this time in September 1978, 12-year-old Carol Lynn Sullivan disappeared from a rural school bus stop in Osteen, Florida, which is not far at all from where Charlie was living and newly working. Two weeks later, her severed, skinless head was discovered stuffed inside of a paint can in a remote area. The rest of her was never found. The skull painted a picture, though. She had suffered severe head trauma from behind. The paint can was one that was used in auto repainting, and we know Charlie was working in an auto plant. So, while having dinner with a friend and his mother, the mother brought up this horrible murder, and apparently Charlie burst out into what was described as maniacal, inappropriate laughter. Charlie is now one of the suspects in her murder, but then again, so is Henry Lee Lucas. So in the early 80s, Charlie began dating a woman named Terry, who had been a friend of his girlfriend. Charlie liked her immediately, as she was bubbly and outgoing. They married in 1986. It is interesting to note that, as sources say, no relatives were invited to their wedding. It is also important to note that he was known to tell people that his mother had died in a car accident. Angela, Charlie's sister, did advise him that before he married her, he should tell her about his crimes back in Indiana. No one knows if he actually ever did. In 1989, Terry and Charlie bought and settled into a beach house on Big Pine Key. Just barely before their move there, 20-year-old Lisa Saunders' body was found in Big Pine Key. She had been a cancer survivor. Her remains had been found a bit after, and her heart looked as if it had been removed. Interestingly, and sadly, during the summer of 1989, 38-year-old Sherry Parisho's mutilated body was found under a bridge in Big Pine Key, just four blocks from Charlie and Terry's house. Sherry's throat had been slashed so violently that the knife blade actually cut through part of her spine. Then her torso had been cut open and her heart had been removed. Another story goes that one of Charlie's friends, who was in a band, invited the couple to come see him play. Once when Charlie, who had been drinking heavily, got up to use the restroom, Terry confided in that friend that she had contemplated calling the police on Charlie, that she had recently found him in the fish room they had for cleaning fish he caught. The sink and Charlie himself were completely covered in blood. She said that there had been a woman murdered only a block from them that night, and she was scared Charlie might have had something to do with it. But Charlie did fish incessantly, and the friend told her there was just no way Charlie could ever murder anyone. In the early 90s, as Charlie and Terry worked opposite shifts, Charlie kept himself busy fishing and traveling a bit. He also had begun working for Lockheed Martin and had to go to Miami often. And Charlie was known to keep track of his mileage as he fueled his vehicle. In 1995, it was later discovered that there was a spike in mileage around the time that 38-year-old Darlene Toller's mutilated remains were found in Miami. She had been decapitated. Her heart had been cut out of her chest. 
So we all know that while living on or near the ocean could be magical and beautiful, there is always that looming fear of hurricanes. During one sort of scary hurricane season, Terry's niece, Michelle, had offered her aunt and uncle Charlie to come stay at her house in Orlando. She was a successful TV executive. The couple took her up on her offer and found that they had suffered pretty extensive damage to their home in the aftermath. On September 2nd, 2004, Hurricane Ivan was on its way toward the Brandt couple. The path was uncertain, so on the 11th again, Michelle told them to come on up to her house near Orlando to shelter with her until the storm passed. Again, the couple happily took her up on her offer. And really, Michelle adored her aunt and uncle very much. Charlie was a sweet, laid-back guy who seemed to have always been good to her aunt. He would, of course, remark on her beauty, nicknaming her Victoria's Secret, but he seemed rather harmless. Michelle's mother and Terry's sister, Mary Lou, lived in North Carolina and was in constant contact with her daughter. They spoke on the phone nearly every single day. Michelle, Terry, and Charlie had even seen Charlie's sisters, Angela and Jessica, as well as his father, Herbert, while there, and it had been a pleasant visit. Two days after Charlie and Terry had come up, they were still at Michelle's house, and that particular night, they had been drinking and got into an argument about how Charlie thought that it was safe to go home, and he was very persistent about leaving. There was an urgency, but Terry disagreed. One of Michelle's friends had planned on coming over, but Michelle said that due to the couple's argument, it was best not to come. Then after, Charlie calmed down and said that he, in fact, did want to stay one more night. This was September 13th. After that evening, there was no more contact from Michelle. Her mother tried over and over to get Michelle on the phone, and it started going instantly to voicemail. Her friends also tried calling, but to no avail. Two days after radio silence, on the evening of September 15th, one of Michelle's friends, Debbie, drove over to her house to check on her while she was on the phone with Mary Lou. The doors were locked. She knocked, but there was no answer. She went to the living room windows and knocked on them and still no response. Terry and Charlie's vehicle was parked in front of the garage door. After trying to get the attention of a couple of neighbors, Debbie saw one coming outside and she asked him to help her. He agreed, except he refused to break a window to allow Debbie inside, which is understandable. He shined his flashlight into the garage windows and saw what appeared to be a male hanging from the ceiling, quite obviously deceased. The man then immediately called the police. The scene was horrific. Officers spoke about how gruesome it was in the sweltering heat of that garage. The now 47-year-old Charlie was dead. He had hung himself from a bedsheet from a rafter in what was described as a fairly advanced state of decomposition. They found Terry sitting and slumped over on the living room couch with seven stab wounds to her chest. The wounds were later determined to be from rapid secession, indicating anger. 
as they continued searching the house on into Michelle's bedroom, and that's where they found her body. She had been stabbed just once through the chest. Charlie then removed her clothing and put the blood-soaked garments in the bathroom sink. He then went back, decapitated her, disemboweled her, and removed her heart. Charlie had used knives from Michelle's kitchen. It was quite clear that he had taken his time with Michelle and her remains. The authorities then went and searched Charlie and Terry's home, and what they found explained more about Charlie and his murderous deviance. On the back of their bedroom door, there was a very detailed anatomy poster of a female with her hair up in a bun. It showed the skeletal and muscular system. It looked like a poster one might see in their doctor's office. Of course, neither worked in the medical field. And hadn't Terry thought that quite strange, having to look at that every single day? On top of the very odd poster in the bedroom of all places, he had medical books, an anatomy book, medical journals, and even a newspaper clipping that showed a human heart. Special Agent D'Ambrosius stated, quote, He had a sexual obsession with body parts, organs, necrophilia, peeping, women's lingerie, etc. He enjoyed viewing a variety of sexually deviant internet sites and received Victoria's Secret catalogs, end quote. And all were addressed to Charlie and stashed in his attic. It was said that the investigators that combed through his computer came across a few necrophilia sites that were intensely graphic. He also surfed through sites that topics included erotic horror, death fetish erotica, and drop-dead gorgeous. He was searching for images of women caught in horribly violent and gory acts that were made to look dead. This, of course, is reminiscent of Jeffrey Dahmer, though it would have, of course, been men. If Jeffrey had had the internet access that we have today, one could imagine what his Google history might look like. It was deduced that Charlie had been infatuated with Michelle for quite some time, and the precision of the wounds he inflicted upon her body showed that there could be little doubt that he had done this before. The authorities began tracing old cold cases where women had been murdered in the southern or central part of Florida, and they came up with a whopping 27 cases that they wanted to review to see if Charlie had any connection whatsoever. With cold cases, as we all know, it takes time and a lot of manpower to work them and often with little to no evidence, but they have not given up. Michelle and Terry's family are furious that Charlie's past had been buried for over 30 years. They blame Herbert and even Angela for not getting Charlie counseling or some level of help once he was out of the state mental hospital at 14 years old. Of course, he was a minor and this was the early 70s. No one believed a child could be cognizant and held responsible for something so heinous. And because he was a minor, his record was sealed. And while I agree with the statement about Herbert, I feel more forgiving of Angela. 
She was always a little scared of him since the night he murdered their mother. She could still see his glazed-over eyes as he strangled her once he realized he was out of bullets. From the age of 14 to 47, to her and everyone else around Charlie, nothing else had happened. Everyone that knew him stated that there was something a little odd about him, but in no way did they think he was capable of murder. Angela, of course, knew better, but her brother had not displayed any behaviors after his release to make her think that he would do it again. His father should have made Charlie face what he had done. He should have most certainly put him in serious therapy and perhaps not advocated so blindly to have Charlie released back into his care. It was said that Herbert didn't believe in therapy, but I simply cannot imagine a scenario where your child murders your beloved spouse and you would just want to sweep it under the rug as if nothing ever happened. Then again, the medical experts all agreed that there was really nothing wrong with Charlie when they assessed him in his youth. Of course, we now know that a judge released his mental health records to an investigator, and that investigator stated it helped him understand the motive behind Charlie's crimes. But that's it. No more of that information has been released, at least that I've found. So I began researching to see if there was anything that might fit. He couldn't have been given a diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder at 14. It would have been conduct disorder, and there's just no evidence that I could find indicating he displayed any conduct behavioral issues whatsoever. I saw the word schizoid thrown around with regards to Charlie. According to the Mayo Clinic, this disorder is an uncommon condition in which people avoid social activities and consistently shy away from interaction with others. They also have a limited range of emotional expression. People with this disorder may be viewed as odd or eccentric. They often feel that they can't experience pleasure and have difficulty expressing emotions or reacting appropriately to situations. It usually develops in early adulthood, though some features might be noticeable during childhood. Some symptoms have some common ground with schizophrenia, but people with schizoid are in touch with reality and are unlikely to experience paranoia or hallucinations. Risk factors are increased if the person has a parent or other close relative who has this type of personality disorder or even having a parent who was cold, neglectful, or unresponsive to emotional needs, and perhaps Charlie's father fits here. But I am unsure, and I don't know if this exactly lines up with what we know about Charlie. It's close, but I'm not entirely convinced. I also saw someone say it was most likely something called compartmentalized dissociative fugue disorder, and this is one we don't often come across in our community, so I researched to more familiarize myself, though I think we all get the gist just from the name. And if you've seen AMC's show Breaking Bad, well then someone being in a fugue state should sound familiar. According to the U.S. National Library of Medicine, National Institutes of Health, quote, 
Dissociative fugue is a psychiatric disorder characterized by amnesia coupled with sudden unexpected travel away from the individual's usual surroundings and denial of all memory of his or her whereabouts during the period of wandering. Dissociative fugue is a rare disorder that is infrequently reported, end quote. They state that dissociative fugue symptoms are often related to stressful life events and can be comorbid with a depressive disorder. Now, we really don't have much information on Charlie's youth and anything significantly stressful that happened. Yes, his parents moved them a few times, but so many children are. Could the shooting of the dog trigger this? It's not out of the realm of possibility, but not very probable. Charlie did say that his mother nagged him a lot, but they were also described as quite close. Not to mention, I would think Angela would have said something about some major stressful events that might explain Charlie's actions, but perhaps not. The compartmentalized portion of what was said about Charlie refers to a defense mechanism where someone suppressed their thoughts and emotions And it is not always done consciously and can justify or defend a person's level of engagement in certain behaviors. I'm not really sure if compartmentalized dissociative fugue disorder truly explains it. We do know that Charlie described feeling the compulsion to try to kill his family as well. A compulsion is, of course, the feeling that one is being forced to do something, that the urge is irresistible and goes against one's conscious wishes, and that seems fair enough. So, it's hard to put a concrete label on him. I'd be so very interested in what all of you think might have been going on with him. Love and respect to the families his crimes affected, as well as the victims, as always. So tell me, guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment below, or you can always DM me on Instagram, at Serial underscore Killing. All of my contact information is below. And thank you so, so much for listening, guys, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me, and I really appreciate that. Thanks, guys. Have a great day.